Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Nine-year-old Azalea says adults are surprised to hear how invested she is in climate action at such a young age. Some people are like, well, we're, we're not going to be alive to see it. And we're like, well, it's my future. I should decide what's good for our future. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Today, how our region is living through the climate emergency. After seeing a documentary about climate change, Leticia Colón de Mejías changed the trajectory of her life. Boy, I thought I was helping people in healthcare, but the reality is if we don't tackle climate change and change the way we interact with energy and the environment, all this work I'd be doing is for nothing. Plus, the Biden administration wants to expand electric vehicle infrastructure. Local drivers share their experiences. I can tell you that if I press on the accelerator, I can go very fast, very quickly. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're focusing on climate change. It's part of special coverage from the New England News Collaborative, Marking Earth Day. And we look at how New Englanders are living through this climate emergency. By the time today's teenagers turn 50, New England's climate will feel very different. Under current warming trends, states like New Hampshire will have shorter winters with less snow. Some coastal areas will be underwater, and it will all be worse without swift action to stop fossil fuel emissions. It's this possible future that's calling more and more young people to act. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek reports from her state. Ember and Azalea Morgan remember where they were when they first realized what climate change was doing and would do to their planet. We were at a friend's house for, for a party, dinner thing, blah, 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 blah. And we were watching TV, National Geographic, I think. And um, I saw this video about like polar bears and global warming and how the ice is melting and they don't have a lot of ice left. And I got really sad. That's Azalea. She's nine and Ember is 10. Scientists say the world has about until these sisters are in college to prevent the worst effects of climate change. That night, Molly Morgan, the girl's mom, remembers what happened at bedtime. I had a moment um, with Azalea in her bed when she was just sobbing. It was just uncontrollably, like, almost like I'd never heard her sob before. And so for me to have my own child be cognizant of these climate issues and mass extinction on our planet, it just really hit home to me. And my mom was like, okay, we will do something. I promise you, I don't know what, but we will do something. This was in 2019, just days before a major climate summit in New York. Then 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, now a household name, was sailing there across the Atlantic to raise awareness about climate change. It gave the Morgans an idea to pack up and bike all the way to New York from their home in Andover, New Hampshire, to be part of the moment. And it certainly was empowering, especially having those girls, you know, pedaling their little legs on these tiny bicycle wheels hundreds of miles, really. It was phenomenal. 
Azalea says it surprised some adults that she and her sister were so invested in this at such a young age. And some people are like, well, we're, we're not going to be alive to see it. And we're like, well, it's my future. I should decide what, what's good for our future. When that future arrives, if adults don't take more action now, scientists say Azalea and Ember will live on a planet plagued by more extreme heat, floods, droughts, wildfires, and storms, and all the inequality, health, and social problems they'll cause. With that in mind, the sisters have kept up their climate activism, raising money for solar panels at their school, going vegetarian, and encouraging classmates to recycle. Ember ran for New Hampshire kid governor on a climate platform. They're part of a core of youth climate activists that's growing exponentially across the state. Hi, I'm Nikhil Chavda. Uh, I live in Nottingham, New Hampshire, and I'm 14. Um, well, I'm Lydia Hansberry. I live in Hanover, New Hampshire, um, and I'm 15. Like the Morgan sisters, Lydia and Nikhil say they've been worried about the environment for a long time. Lydia remembers first learning about the ozone hole when she was in fifth grade. I kind of thought it's like, and it sounds kind of childish, but it's not fair. Like, how how can we be so careless with our home, and how can we just destroy it in this way? Last year, Lydia was on a Zoom call to hear about the launch of a new climate justice campaign in New Hampshire. A student organizer sent her a chat asking if she wanted to join a youth program with the activist group 350 New Hampshire. It's a chapter of the left-leaning nonprofit started by Vermont environmentalist Bill McKibben. Groups like 350 are giving more young activists like Lydia an outlet for their climate anxiety. It's kind of knowing what scares you, but also knowing that there is the potential to fix it. Nikhil was recruited by a friend and classmate to join 350. He says being part of a group of other activists, mostly led by people in their 20s, has been vital while he's still too young to vote or drive himself to protests. It's hard to get taken seriously when you're 14. In terms of things like asking our representatives and senators to sign bills, they don't really think of us as voters of the future. They think of us as kids. Nikhil has found he and his peers can have an impact through climate strikes, raising awareness on social media, and getting out the vote for progressive candidates who support strong climate action. New Hampshire is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful states in the country, and I want to preserve that. I want to keep temperatures down. I want to keep lakes full without drought, and I don't want sea level rise. I just want things to stay as perfect as it is right now. Nikhil says he's learned to emphasize New Hampshire's beauty when he talks climate policy with adults, including state legislators. He hopes to run for state office himself one day. Some young climate activists are already seeing policy results. The Eco Club at Portsmouth High School helped push for a citywide ban on styrofoam and some other single-use plastics. But right before it was set to take effect in 2020, the city council wanted to postpone it because of COVID-19. Abby Herholtz is a senior at Portsmouth High and the Eco Club co-president. I reached her by Zoom at a noisy coffee shop. She didn't have good Wi-Fi at home. I was really angry. I was like, this is unacceptable. We need to figure something else out. So in spite of the pandemic and remote school, Abby and her classmates mobilized. Again, we went to the city council. We wrote letters. And again, we brought the youth front to be like, this is our future, not all about you. And we ended up changing the minds of three or four city council members. And now the ban is in effect. 
Portsmouth's plastics ban is the first local ordinance of its kind in the state. All these young activists had the same advice for people their age on how to turn their fears about climate change into action. Here's 10-year-old Ember Morgan. Just do it. Like, you don't need anything. You just got to start. They say we all have more power than we think. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. Leticia Colón de Mejia says, when it comes to climate change, she teaches children and families the warrior way. We're people and we live on the planet. And as people, warriors protect and defend both people and the planet. We use our superpowers for good and we pledge to learn all that we can and focus on the warrior way. Leticia is an environmentalist and entrepreneur in Connecticut. She runs an energy efficiency business and is president of Green Eco Warriors. But she first became interested in environmental issues while working in the healthcare industry. During that time, I saw a film, Kilowatt Hours, by Jeffrey Berry and BBC. And it's all about mountaintop removal and climate change and the impacts on humans. And I realized for the first time in my life how seriously connected energy and our human health are. And as I started to unravel that story and understand the dynamics between energy and water, energy and air, and the impacts on human health, I thought, boy, I thought I was helping people in healthcare, but the reality is if we don't tackle climate change and change the way we interact with energy and the environment, all this work I'd be doing is for nothing because I can't eat money, breathe money, or drink it, and neither can my children. So when you're working with youth and their families, you talk about, you know, what energy is, where it comes from, why it's important to conserve. What's your like one minute elevator pitch for our listeners that tackles those questions? All things are connected. You know, when I speak with leaders and and families in the community, people always feel that other problems are more pressing. But at the end of the day, I promise if you hold your breath, you'll realize pretty fast that air is more important. We all have basic necessities, air, water, food, shelter, health. And in order to meet these basic requirements of life, we have to consider the interconnections between our everyday choices and the impacts on the planet we live on because people are directly connected to the planet's health. And there's only one planet as far as I'm concerned. I have really no interest in getting on a ship with Elon Musk and heading to Mars. So I have to do what's right here on Earth and protect the one place that we live safely. I think it can sometimes feel like a luxury to be energy efficient. You know, it can take time and money to install solar panels on a roof or to put more insulation in the attic. What is your approach with people who want to conserve energy but say, look, I don't have that kind of money to put up front? That's a great question as well. Of course, upgrading one's home and shelter costs some money. Connecting to renewable resources can sometimes cost a little bit as well. But ultimately, we're in a blessed time where we have a new administration. The Biden administration is really looking to heavily invest in things like retrofits and buildings and homes across America. Because when you retrofit your home, you know, you lower the cost of energy for your family for a long time, forever. Whereas everyone's struggling with energy bills. In fact, Connecticut has the highest cost of energy per capita in the nation, as do many New England states. And so it's really critical as New Englanders to consider the fact that by drawing down demands at our home, 
we actually lower the cost of energy overall because we pay for energy collectively by the kilowatt hour. And just like supply and demand laws apply to everything else, the more energy we use, the higher that cost is per kilowatt hour. So it's really important that collectively everyone works in their own home, building, business, school to lower that demand so we can lower the cost of energy overall. And it has the added benefit of lowering air pollution, water pollution, providing better health and creating local jobs. Research from Yale University finds that Latino and Black people are more likely to be alarmed or concerned about global warming than white people. Do you think there is a misconception out there that the environmental movement mostly involves middle to upper class white people? I don't think it's a misconception necessarily. I think it's that people of color are definitely concerned about climate change and environmental issues because unfortunately they're generally the ones who have to deal with those environmental justice issues. They live in low-income communities often where power plants are cited specifically. I think that it's that people of color often have lots of things on their plate that they're dealing with and they've had a long-standing socioeconomic difficulty with being underrepresented on political issues and being disconnected to processes of planning and budgeting at the municipal level. I know that people of color are concerned about environmental issues because as a person of color, I am concerned about my family and everyone I know in the Latin community that I interact with and African-American and West Indian communities that I represent here in Connecticut, they're concerned about their family's welfare. And so they have to be concerned about the environment. I think that, you know, what really needs to happen for us to be more engaged is we need an effort systemically, nationally, and definitely in New England to ensure that we're providing information on climate, energy, and the environment in digestible formats that people can engage in and have conversations about and feel like they're party to the conversation and plan. There's this tension, I think, that a lot of uh, people feel, I know I feel, between individual action and collective action. You know, on the one hand, being energy efficient in your lifestyle is important, but then on the other hand, collective structural change is needed, mostly likely at the governmental level, to reduce carbon emissions enough to actually stop global warming. Do you feel that tension personally? No, I don't feel that tension personally, and here's why. Ultimately, Governmental change, political change, systemic change starts with us, individuals. We are those people. We are that systemic change. And unless we take ownership on that and empower ourselves to help our communities, governments, and agencies plan effectively to make that transition equitable, inclusive, and diverse, it will never happen. Yeah, so like if somebody, you know, is looking at a piece of trash in their hand and they're like, well, I could recycle this or I could throw it away, but... Is it really going to make a difference? It just feels like just a drop in the bucket. You would say, yes, it does make a difference because we're changing collective consciousness. Am I getting that right? Yes. Ultimately, each of us has the ability to sway those around us by doing positive things. Eventually, you could spark someone else like Jeff Barry sparked me. He never met me. He never saw me. He did a film. It touched my heart. It changed my life's trajectory. And in turn, I've changed the trajectory of many other people's lives. Leticia Colón de Mejías is founder and CEO of Energy Efficiency Solutions and president of Green Eco Warriors. Thank you so much for coming on Next. Thank you for having me. Other people across New England are also rethinking their individual actions and how they impact the planet. 
After a year of virtual conferences, some climate researchers are reevaluating how they travel. But many professors are also eager to see their colleagues at other universities in person. WBUR's Jesse Remedios reports on rethinking air travel to help the environment. Biologist Pamela Templer is a real-life Lorax. She studies the effects of climate change on trees across New England, from the White Mountains of New Hampshire to the Harvard Forest in central Massachusetts to here along Commonwealth Avenue on campus at Boston University. I love working with trees. I mean, there's, if you look at them, it's like looking at history, right? History, in this case, is a small leafless hardwood tree with a silver band wrapped around it to measure its trunk size. It looks like it might blow over if a good gust of wind struck it just right. But this tree's actually growing pretty fast. And we think that's because of warmer temperatures. So we know with rising temperatures, they're rising faster in winter than summer. And we're seeing that that damages the trees. And so it's really important to understand how the climate is changing. Before the pandemic, Templar traveled the world to spread that message. At meetings in New York, Kentucky, Washington, D.C., She even flew to Madrid, Spain, for a United Nations climate conference in 2019. I think it's really important that scientists not just do work that ends up in a journal on a shelf somewhere, that we share, you know, the wonder of the world, um, but also lessons learned so that we can help solve environmental challenges together. But by flying, you're emitting greenhouse gases, which eventually hurts the trees. Absolutely. And so I think one lesson um, of COVID and I'm so excited about is already people are realizing that one of the best things we've learned this year is that we can do a lot of work just as productively on Zoom. She's not alone. Other climate researchers are now rethinking travel because of the pandemic. At elite research universities, faculty travel can produce the carbon footprint of a small city. And on average, climate scholars take more flights per year than researchers from any other academic field. Of the eight trips I took in 2019, like three of them were really important about the rest, you know, I could have done creatively using Zoom or something. Jacqueline Ashmore is the director of BU's Institute for Sustainable Energy. Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. Ashmore recently co-authored a report which estimated BU faculty air travel added up to 8,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide in 2019. That's equal to the carbon footprints of about 900 households. If there's one thing that's kind of alarming to me, it's that people expect to kind of go back to right where they were beforehand. And they, we just had a whole year of thinking differently. A majority of BU employees surveyed for the report said that they plan to return to their 2019 travel habits once restrictions were lifted. They said that not traveling could negatively affect their careers. The reason? Loss of networking opportunities. There's like an organic thing that happens when you're at conferences and you go get lunch or dinner, you know, or you're having a cup of coffee and saying, like, let's talk about your latest research. Boston University ecologist Robinson Fulweiler understands the pull of in-person conferences. But also, you know, the carbon footprint thing is a serious thing we have to think about. And we have to balance that, right? And we have to make some hard choices. For me personally, I will undergo some sort of (laughs) more of a question, like, is this really worth it? Fulweiler thinks that if well-known climate scientists set an example by committing to travel less, it could lead to a serious culture shift in the academic world. And if climate scientists do end up doing more work online, 
the impact would be more than a symbolic gesture. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jesse Remedios. Coming up, we'll hear from New Englanders about the pluses and minuses of owning an electric car and look at how the region could transform its electricity grid from offshore wind turbines to power lines. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Cars and trucks put out nearly a third of all greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Those emissions in turn lead to a warming planet and climate change. Many people see electric vehicles as a surefire way to reduce these emissions. Ahead of the show, we asked New Englanders how they feel about electric cars. Douglas Coffin, New Haven, Connecticut. I have a 2017 Chevy Bolt that I have driven for three years and about 39,000 miles. And the thing I like best about it is in all that time, I have never, ever taken it in for any kind of service or repair yet. There is almost no maintenance. I have owned the car for 18 months and I have spent exactly zero dollars. I repeat that zero dollars on maintenance. This is Sarah Weck from West Chesterfield, New Hampshire. She says her Volkswagen e-Golf cost her about $20,000 new. That was after $9,000 of rebates from the federal government and the state of Vermont, where she owned a business. Sarah was motivated to buy the car because she wanted to cut back her carbon footprint. She charges the car in her garage using solar panels. But I have to say, there are so many other reasons I love driving it. It handles better than any car I own currently and better than any car I've ever owned in my life. Um, It is extremely smooth and it has instant torque, which um, I'm not a physicist, so I can't explain it from that, that point of view. But I can tell you that if I press on the accelerator, I can go very fast, very quickly. Um, there is so you're no... like a race car driver. <laughs> exactly. Has um, owning your own EV changed your thinking in any way? Well, I mean, the one thing that it has changed that surprised me was now that when I'm driving um, a vehicle that shows me how many miles I have left, I'm more careful about conserving my energy So, you know, instead of making an extra trip to the store, I'll try to be more careful about getting everything I need at one time so I don't have to go back. It does make you more aware. Hey, look, you know, I'm using energy. That's Sarah Weck of Westchesterfield, New Hampshire. 
Elias Makos was equally enthusiastic. He called all the way from Quebec and had some insights on how things are different in Canada. I just got my first electric car and I'm absolutely loving it. Of course, here in Quebec, we get $13,000 Canadian in government rebates if you buy an electric vehicle. I guess that would be around $10,000 US. That definitely impacted my decision. And I will also take going from a $100 fill up on my old SUV. And now I am spending $7 to fill up that car using one of the thousands of public chargers that we have available in Quebec, which is a really important part of the electric car cocktail. Not everyone we heard from was prepared to make the leap. I'm not quite ready for all electric because there's just not enough charging stations. I would love to go all electric. Susan Burt of Wallingford, Connecticut, currently has a hybrid. So most electric vehicles use the same chargers except for Tesla. And I do have an app that will show me where the closest charging stations are. But I have on occasion gone to the app, found a charging station only to find out it's only Tesla. So I'm a little reluctant to take my car too far outside my local area where I know where the charging stations are unless I have gas in it. That's why I don't want to go fully electric yet. Right now, about 1% of all the cars on the road are electric vehicles in the U.S. That's according to The New York Times. President Joe Biden has proposed a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. About $175 billion of that would go toward electric vehicles. Jessica Transick joins us to talk about how this federal push could affect a wider adoption of this technology here in New England. She's an associate professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. She researches energy technology with a focus on climate change mitigation. Professor Transic, welcome to Next. Thank you. All right, so first off, why are there so few electric vehicles on the road? Well, with any new technology, it takes some time to really, you know, build up momentum and and develop and, and take off in the marketplace. And so I think that's what we've seen with electric vehicles. The internal combustion engine vehicle, which is what most people still drive today has a longer history and a longer runway to grow and dominate the market. And more recently, we've seen electric vehicles growing and technology improvements that should allow this type of vehicle to you know, become a larger, much larger share of the personal vehicle fleet and also other kinds of vehicles that are used for more heavy-duty transportation, vans, trucks, commercial vehicles, and so forth. Yeah, you said the combustion engines really dominated the market. And I guess, like, one of the things that leads to market domination is, you know, cost-effectiveness and just the functionality of a vehicle. And a lot of people say the cost of an electric vehicle is a hurdle for them to buy one. Plus, there aren't as many used ones in the market right now. So what's the cost difference between electric vehicles and combustion engines or cars that run on fuel? Yeah, the good news is that there are electric vehicles available in the market today that people can purchase that don't cost more than comparable internal combustion engine vehicles. 
that's when we take into account the total cost of ownership of the car. So what happens when you own an electric vehicle is that you save substantially on operating and maintaining the car, even if you have to pay a little bit more upfront. And so it works out to be, you know, a cost competitive option. Let's say somebody gets over the cost hurdle, they buy an electric vehicle, and then you have to figure out where you're going to charge it. And, you know, I'm looking at this map from the U.S. Department of Energy that shows where the public charging stations are in the U.S. And in parts of New England, there are a lot more charging stations listed, like, for example, in eastern Massachusetts or around Providence, Rhode Island. And then there's, you know, this corridor along I-91 in Connecticut and western Mass. But in more rural areas like northern New Hampshire and Maine, those public charging stations are more scarce. So I guess my question to you is, are there enough charging stations out there to make electric vehicles as functional as a car that runs on gas? One of the best ways to charge an electric vehicle is to do that at home. Now, the challenge comes in when you don't have off-street parking, and there it's really important to be able to charge your vehicle when you're at home, wherever you park, even if that's on a public street. But it's also important to have public chargers in places where, you know, people are regularly stopped, you know, where they can stop and charge their car and sort of fit that into their daily activities. And really one of the priorities is for those chargers to be fast chargers so that you can quickly, you know, recharge your vehicle. But just to put some numbers on it, if you have charging at home for over 90% of days, most people would be able to meet their energy needs by simply plugging in when they're at home overnight. You know, this home charging option is really important. And then strategic public charging in other locations, that's really the way to go. If the Biden administration's infrastructure plan were to pass and boost the number of electric cars on the road, would it specifically increase the number of public charging stations enough? Would it decrease the time it takes to charge a battery? Would it address the cost of buying electric vehicles? Yeah, so they are emphasizing expanding the network of electric vehicle charging stations and also offering tax incentives and rebates for electric cars. And so those are both really important approaches that can have a huge impact. I mean, what we're talking about here, when we're talking about using electric vehicles to drive down greenhouse gas emissions and address climate change is, is a pretty rapid and ambitious transition. It's already getting underway with the announcements that car companies are making and with these policy incentives that the Biden administration has announced. And a number of states, including in New England, have incentives for electric vehicles. And so it's it's happening. The momentum is building up. And so I think we could see rapid change, but definitely it's going to be really important to be strategic about how these government policies are set up in order to push that whole system in a beneficial direction and also an equitable one, because it's important to make these vehicles, you know, and the benefits that they give to consumers available to consumers and not only wealthy consumers. Jessica Transic is an associate professor at MIT. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, 
Moving on from electric vehicles, another portion of President Joe Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal would go toward upgrading the country's electric transmission system, the poles and wires that everyone relies on to get power nearby or from hundreds of miles away. WSHU's J.D. Allen has more on what those upgrades could look like in New England. The Biden administration is poised to approve 10 new offshore wind projects in the Atlantic Ocean before the end of the year. Hundreds of turbines could be installed off the coast of New England over the next decade or more. The power from those turbines needs to get from about 30 miles offshore to the regional power grid on land. And George represents the grid operator at ISO New England. You need transmission to bring offshore wind onto the system from out in the federal waters. But then also you're going to need transmission to move it around the system. Recent ISO New England studies found there is about 6 gigawatts of headroom for offshore wind before additional transmission infrastructure will be needed. Biden's energy plans include 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. The president's infrastructure proposal sets aside around $300 billion to upgrade the country's decades-old transmission systems. I believe you have good alignment today between the private sector and the public sector on the need to move aggressively towards a cleaner energy future. That's Bill Quinlan, president of Transmission and Eversource. They're a major electric provider and the largest transmission operator in New England in control of just under half of the region's transmission infrastructure. Quinlan says the upgrades driven by Biden's plan will be essential to help traditional fossil fuel facilities retire and bring on new clean energy power providers. It's the enabler of the country's decarbonization efforts. Quinlan says it will really be the responsibility of utility companies to invest capital in transmission projects. However, MIT energy economist Christopher Knittel says it will be difficult for these projects to get approval from different state regulators or even countries. He points to Eversource's Northern Pass power line, which New Hampshire blocked in 2018. Its successor from Central Maine Power has faced huge pushback as it continues to move forward. Unfortunately, it has to go through either Vermont or New Hampshire or both. So even though there's some cheap carbon-free electricity up there, it, it might end up never being able to make its way all the way to Massachusetts. There's also the cost. The estimated investment in the region's infrastructure system has been over $12 billion since 2002, according to ISO New England. George says the investments have kept the system reliable at farther distances. A state like Vermont that truly is you know, landlocked can look into contracting with these resources. Electrons don't stop at state borders. Eversource, United Illuminating, National Grid, and others have made promises to spend ratepayer money and possibly federal funding on these goals over the next few decades. Lee Hoffman is a lawyer that represents power generators and suppliers. He says that could mean new power lines tethered along state right-of-ways or buried underground. We have transmission lines, which are the highways and the interstates that carry massive amounts of power all the way down to the distribution systems, which are avenues, boulevards, and even country roads. Hoffman says there is a real transmission challenge. Sometimes where the infrastructure is, is not where people would ideally like to site power projects because those are sometimes in residential neighborhoods 
or they're on historic properties or there are endangered species nearby. But without proper infrastructure in place and a big storm hits or demand for power spikes, it's a lot harder to keep the lights on. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm J.D. Allen. After the break, two young climate activists talk about how their experiences as immigrants and women of color are inspiring them to take action. And we'll travel on a boat with scientists looking for an endangered North Atlantic right whale in Cape Cod Bay. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. The personal is political, so the saying goes. And if you talk to young environmentalists, they'll often tell you they got involved in the movement after seeing the effects of climate change and climate injustice firsthand. WBUR's Miriam Wasser spoke with two young activists about how their experiences as immigrants and women of color inspired them to take action. I'm Andrea Namitra. I'm 25. I was born in Ghana and my family moved here in 1998 when I was three. I remember my childhood feeling like it went by very quickly and just like constantly having to work and like seeing my mom and my parents like constantly having to work but still not feeling like they're being stable. It wasn't until college when I was at UMass that those things started to click. And I was looking back on like my story and coming here and just seeing that there are systems in place that delineate people into haves and have nots. My name is Dania Halak. I'm 18 years old. I was born in Damascus, Syria, where my mom is from. And then I moved to Aleppo, where my dad is from. And, you know, I I lived there, I think, very, like, great childhood, um, a wonderful life. And then the Syrian Civil War started. And I recall kind of this moment where I had just returned back from school and a bomb was dropped on the college right across the street from my house. There was so much pressure. I, I couldn't hear anything. I remember just like squeezing my eyes and, and I couldn't see anything. And I tried to open my eyes, but like everything's still black. I focus on that moment specifically because it comes up to mind when I kind of was learning about how the city that I live in now, which is Revere, um, is like one of the most vulnerable cities to climate change. I feel like I have already lost a home, which is Syria, and I would call Revere home, and I'm trying to call it home, but it's like really difficult to like build that attachment to a place that I know I might lose as well. My climate work really sprung in my sophomore year of college. I switched my major, which really upset my dad. I, I went in as like a, a biology major pre-med and then I realized that I really hated the classes in bio. 
So I switched into natural resources conservation. Like my classes were filled with, this is how the animals are being impacted by climate change. This is the rise in sea levels. This is the parts per million, like super science heavy. I wasn't yet fully thinking of like the people aspect of climate change. And it wasn't until 2018 when I went back home to Ghana. And this had been 20 years since I had actually gone back home to Ghana. So it was a very interesting experience where things kind of clicked for me. I came to the United States in late 2016, the beginning of my freshman year of high school. I stumbled upon an article by Richard Seeger from Columbia uh, University, and he talks about how climate change actually played a role in, in starting the Syrian civil war. So like the story goes is for three years, Syria experienced a drought and then crops died and the economy suffered and, you know, farmers had to move into cities and that also created some tension. So then the stability of Syria was kind of shaken up. And I know that like there's not everything that causes serious war that would be, you know, very naive to claim. But just thinking about how something so small can contribute to the thing that happened after of having to move from place to place and then like from country to country, you know, and, and I still battle with that where I'm like, where is home? I still don't know what home is. Part of the reason why I act is very personal in nature of just like seeing the severe droughts in Ghana, torrential rains during the wet season that can completely flood a whole community in Ghana. The blackouts, because there was just not enough electricity to go to everybody. When I was there was where I started to see more of the people aspect of environment and climate change. And so now what I'm doing this work with environmental justice and climate change, like really, really bringing in the people stories, because I think that is often forgotten. I remember we went to the souk, me and my dad, and we saw cherries, and cherries are a staple in Aleppo. Like, we eat cherries all the time. We even put cherries in meat. And I'm like, oh my God, Baba, can we get this? And he shakes his head and he's like, we can't now. And now I know that, like, at that point, the price was too high. And then, you know, you look back at that moment, and you're like, that was a sign. People of color and like low-income people, working-class people, immigrants are grossly underrepresented in a lot of the halls of power. For me, it's always been very helpful to be grounded in my own story and to always know that there's a community that I can go back to to like talk about it with because um, it's, it's very hard to do it in a space where you're the only one. Something I've witnessed a lot as an immigrant is this act of kind of like you're poor, you're struggling in this way. I'm clearly superior, therefore I have the power to help you and I will help you in this way. And I think that really relates to certain environments in the environmental activism circle where um, in my experience you go into these organizations and it's a very white group and I bet nobody wants to be racist or insensitive but when you have places that are not diverse and not representative of the people that you're fighting for that's often what happens. The major I was in like I was one of the only 
women of color. So it was all white. It was all very naturey people, like people who went on hikes all the time and like had all this like skiing gear. And I'm like, like I like to go on walks in nature, but I don't like have all this gear. So it was definitely like a different space for sure. And like, I feel very supported within my organization, but a lot of the climate coalitions that we're a part of, I'm still the only person of color in that space. I started advocating, you know, for, for climate policy before I learned about its, its its connection to Syria. And then, of course, when I learned just exactly how much we are in trouble here in Novir, um, it was terrifying. And I was like, well, we need to like pump the gas now. I think there's this thing that just like happens uh, when you're an immigrant and you just like fend for other people. There's this like sense of empathy that happens where you do something good simply because it's something good. Danya Halak is a freshman at Amherst College and a field organizer for the environmental policy group Our Climate. Andrea Nemitcha is a co-director of the Massachusetts nonprofit Neighbor to Neighbor. That story was produced by WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Climate change is affecting the survival of species around the world. That's true of critically endangered North Atlantic right whale here in our backyard. Warming oceans have sent these little copepods that right whales eat further north. As hungry whales have followed, they become more vulnerable to ship strikes and fishing line entanglements. And all of this has made it harder for them to reproduce. In Cape Cod Bay, right whales are just about ready to head north. And before they go, researchers are taking stock. CAI's Eve Zukoff climbed aboard a research vessel to join the scientific hunt. On a cool, windy day, a team of scientists is crossing Cape Cod Bay to reach Provincetown, where dozens of North Atlantic right whales were seen just days earlier. There was a bunch of whales on a line between the mouth of Barnstable Harbor and up to Wood End off of Provincetown. So what we're going to do is we're going to head that way. This is team leader Michael Moore, a veterinarian and scientist with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Today I'm hoping to find some whales and get some drone photographs of, of them to measure them and figure out how fat they are, how long they are, and how that compares to the last time we saw them. The goal of Moore's years-long research is to measure the length and width of right whales over time to evaluate whether they're growing in healthy ways. The North Atlantic right whale population has fallen to around 360, and more than 80% of the survivors bear scars of entanglement in rope and fishing gear. Moore says little is known about how the trauma impacts their ability to repopulate. All the news and the noise right now is whose rope killed this whale? And it's not just about killing whales, it's also about the health of the animals that are still alive and their ability to get pregnant or not. And that's a much more subtle, more nuanced question. And the least invasive way to measure a right whale, Moore says, is to use a drone rigged up with a specialized camera that can hover over the whales. It can also help researchers know who they're looking at. Right whales are beautifully equipped for drone work in terms of the identification. They wear their identity right on the top of their heads in the form of the callosities. Callosities are massive calluses that are unique to each individual whale. So every time we take a photograph, we know who it is. Researchers maintain a catalog of these whale images to keep track of which ones are alive, where they're moving, if they have new scars, and whether they're getting pregnant. 
But after five hours on the water, more than 30 miles traveled, and a redirection back towards waters just north of Plymouth, Moore's team has still not seen a single whale. That's until Amy Knowlton of the New England Aquarium hears a faint announcement from the helm. Oh, there it is. How far away? 300 meters. But from this first sighting, it takes another two and a half hours and many tense moments of searching before the team can get close. Close enough, in fact, that we hear the whoosh of a whale exhaling misty air and vapor from its blowhole. Yeah. Looks like his mouth was open there. Michael Moore readies himself on the deck with the drone. The sun is going down, and this is the day's last chance to capture the essential data he's seeking. He and fellow scientist Carolyn Miller stand at the bow. She holds the foot-long drone above her head, and Moore launches it out of her hands, 200 feet into the pale blue sky. Miller watches an iPad and directs Moore in flying the drone. Forward, forward. Right, 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 right. They're in right, sync as the drone flies forward, directly forward, forward. above the whale. This is a great shot. On the screen, the shiny blue-black whale with its mouth open is feeding on a reddish plankton called copepods. At one point, it turns on its side, revealing its belly as it begins to change directions. The team gets the shot that will allow for clear measurements. And as for the identity of the whale... It's no stranger to researchers. He's a 13-year-old juvenile male who's known to have been entangled at least three times in 2009, 2015, and again in 2018. All have left indelible scars. His name is Garlic. Let's go home. Thanks, guys. We got some data. (laughs) After all that, we got some data. By day's end, Tired but satisfied, the researchers have spent 11 hours on the water. They're armed with fresh information about garlic, a whale that represents the potential future of the dwindling species and also the threats it faces. They planned to get some rest and then return to the bay the next morning. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. And that's a wrap this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Special thanks to Annie Ropeek and New Hampshire Public Radio's Climate Reporting Project by Degrees for their help on this episode. The music you hear on Next is by musicians here in New England. And if you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 